0: This week, I learned of a movement beginning in Australia that's now finding its influence in other parts of the world. It's a movement in which groups gather together. Using social media, these groups gather or send out information that identifies a particular park, and then it identifies a date and time and instructs people to gather there. And so at that predetermined date and time, Women, because that's what this group is for, is women only. Women then begin to assemble at that park, but they don't do so together. They enter separately. They go find a spot in which they feel most comfortable. And then when all is ready, again using social media, they're sent a signal to begin. And what happens? Those women who are gathered begin to scream. And then they scream more. And then they scream more. In fact, that's all they do. They scream. That's the whole purpose for these gatherings. And yet this movement in Australia is now finding its way to other parts of the world. And when they're done screaming, they simply return home. They don't speak to one another. They don't remain for a time. They gather, they scream, and they leave. The goal, according to the group, is for these ladies to just simply unburden themselves. One woman says that this is the closest thing she has to joining a coven. That's her description, not mine. Others say that they want to be out of control. And they want to be able to release their frustration. And these groups offer them an opportunity to do that without judgment. Upon hearing of these screen groups, I had two thoughts. The first thought is that God has made himself available for that. When we need to unburden our hearts, he has made himself available to people who call upon him. The second thought is that how much more meaningful would that screaming time be if all that effort that was put together in that instead would have been used to praise God and call out to him. These voices are gathered together and then they're used to reach their maximum pitch and their maximum level of loudness. Think of what those could be done and what they could proclaim if they gathered around the glory of God. We learn from the Apostle Paul that the Christian life is oriented around the glory of God. We see that in our text this morning. Everything we do is motivated by everything he is. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of First Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, A Glorious Salvation, The Testimony of God. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this some have made a shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan and they may that they may learn not to blaspheme you may be seated a high regard for God leads to a high regard for people It is that principle that is demonstrated in the commandments, love God, love others. With the idea that a love for others flows from the love for God. Therefore, it may seem awkward here that the apostle Paul shares his testimony in the middle of a passage in which he's confronting false teaching and, and even discussing church discipline The reality is, though, is that Paul's testimony here makes sense in the text of chapter 1. It makes sense because it follows that notion that one's relationship with God will determine one's relationship with others. His testimony of what God has done for him influences both Paul's labor for God, but also Paul's labor for others. Because of who God is in his own life, the Apostle Paul desires that others experience the same thriving relationship that he has with the Lord. It is his own testimony that drives his motivation. Every testimony involves more than just one individual, every testimony, at the very least, involves the person and every member of the Trinity. It was the Father who identified the plan of redemption since creation. It was the Son, Christ's work on the cross, that makes salvation even possible. And it was the work of the Holy Spirit that makes that salvation effective. And so beginning in verse 12, the Apostle Paul begins to share his testimony, a testimony of his own conversion. And by his testimony, as we've talked about, we see that his testimony is not really about himself. Paul always uses it to point to God. And so thus far as we've seen that testimony beginning in verse 12, we've seen the greatness of Paul's sin, but we've also seen the greatness of Christ's sufficiency, that despite the depths of Paul's depravity, Christ's work brought salvation to Paul. And so we've had a testimony of Paul, and we've had a testimony of Christ. And now Paul turns his attention to a testimony of God. Grateful for all that the Lord has done, Paul turns to a doxology. He turns to the exaltation and the praise of the Lord. The previous verses, verses 12 through 16, all of those lead into verse 17. The only response to the salvation gifted by the Lord is an exaltation of the Lord. And so Paul writes, Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want us to read the text this morning. And I want us to draw near to the Lord, seeing three eternal aspects of who God is. I want you to note first the declaration of God's eternal position God's eternal position. To view God rightly, we must first view God in his rightful position. Proper praise for God begins with a proper placement of God. And so Paul begins his doxology of God by ascribing to him the king of ages. We must look upon God not as we want him to be, but as he already is. Because an accurate assessment or accurate adoration of the Lord begins with an accurate assessment of who the Lord is. It's not a matter of us placing the Lord on the throne. It's not a matter of us electing him leader over all Christ followers. And it's not a matter of us overthrowing current regimes in order to take a military coup and place him in his position. He is already king. He is already ruler. He is the Lord of all. It is a matter then of just us acknowledging that which already exists. He is king of the ages to aid us in this, to to help us in this. All of scripture points exactly to who God is. Appointing to God the supreme ruler, the supreme authority over all things. From Genesis to Revelation, the Lord is declared Lord of all. So that all we need to do is read the very book, read this very book, to know exactly where the Lord belongs. What is the Lord's proper position? The book of Genesis proclaims him king of creation. The book of Exodus proclaims him king of Israel. The book of Ruth and Samuel and Ezra and Chronicles all declare God to be the God and king of history. The prophets refer to him, though, as the king of the future. The book of Acts shows him as the king of the Great Commission. The book of Romans declares him king of salvation. And Ephesians calls him head or king of the church. The Gospels all prove that his authoritative kingship is over this earthly kingdom. But then Revelation also declares that his ultimate kingship is of the heavenly kingdom. There is nothing outside his rule. No place, no person exists apart from the Lord's kingship. It's just as the psalmist declares, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. A king or an emperor or any ruler it's really not that unusual in any day, but specifically in Paul's day, it was not uncommon for a king to be the head of a nation. The lands were divided, nations were conquered, and cities were inherited, and they were all placed under the authority of some sort of ruler. But the king that Paul describes here is somebody very unusual. He's different than any other leader. In fact, Romans 10, 13 tells us that all other leaders fall under the authority of this leader. He is above all other rulers. <coughs> what makes him different is this title here King of the Ages. That title is not found anywhere else in Scripture, but it affirms something that we already know to be true. Passages like Exodus 15 18 already declare it. The Lord will reign forever. And ever, or Jeremiah ten ten. but the Lord is the true God. He is a living God and the everlasting king. The Lord's kingship is distinguished from every other ruler and every other rulership on just one major point, that while every other headship is temporal, the Lord's headship is eternal. There can be many kings throughout history there can be many kings probably into the future but there's only one eternal king Though pharaoh may have ruled over egypt during the time of israel's slavery it ultimately was god who was king and though nebuchadnezzar was the king over babylon at the time of judah's conquering and exile god still ruled And even when Alexander the Great conquered many lands and made the largest empire in the world, God was still the Lord over it all. When King Henry VIII overtook the Church of England and brought it under his authority, it was still under the Lord's authority. In the last 247 years, the United States has had 46 different presidents. That means that each presidency has averaged about 5.37 years. China has had 24 dynasties that produced 259 emperors. Over the course of 2,000 years, that means that each dynasty or each emperor lasted just about eight years. Over 1,200 years, England has had 60 monarchs, 62 to be exact, I think each averaging then 19 years on the throne. And then Egypt, in the course of 3,000 years, had 170 at least different pharaohs. That means they averaged just about 17 years each. And yet, no matter how many leaders have come and gone, ruling over every nation and ruling over every leader of those nations, there has always been one. Over thousands of years, these nations and enemies have produced nearly 500 different leaders, whether you call them emperors or kings or presidents or pharaohs. And yet, to rule all things exists God alone. He alone is sufficient to be king of the ages. As Paul writes to Timothy, he's just recounted his own testimony He's recounted his own call to stand firm in the faith, a faith that would be tested by imprisonment multiple times. And at this time, he writes to Timothy from prison. He's facing impending death, Paul is. And yet, what he does here still points to God as ruler, sitting in in jail, or at least a house arrest. He's showing that he still trusts that indeed the Lord is the king of the ages, that the Lord is still king at that moment. And then he writes to Timothy of a very difficult circumstance, one in which will probably create contention because anytime people are confronted, there's always tension. And here he's telling Timothy to confront the false teachers. And yet Paul still calls God the king of the ages. It was God who reigned over Paul's persecution of of others. And it was the same God who reigned over Paul's conversion. He is God of every trial and God of every triumph. And so we have to ask, is God Lord over our age? Is he still God now? The answer is, of course, As the king of the ages, he must be king of this age as well. If he is the king of the past and he is the king of the future, then he has to be the king of here and now, the king over the present. It matters not who the earthly king of our generation is, because that eternal king is far more superior to them all. And he reigns now just as he has always reigned and will always reign. If he is king of all ages, then he must be king of our age. Because of who he is, good and excellent, he becomes the good and excellent king of our ages. His kingship is one characterized by righteousness and by integrity, the very righteousness and integrity that he embodies. No one can underestimate the good that he can do. As the king of our age then, He sufficiently reigns over all worthy of honor and glory, as the text says. To such a king, there can only be one response, submission. Because he is king, the only response we can have is submission, either voluntarily now or involuntarily at judgment. But because he is a king who reigns, with complete justice and complete goodness and complete righteousness and complete perfection and all his other attributes, we can submit to him in confidence and joy. This is God's eternal position. He is the king of the ages. And our eternal position then is submission to the king of the ages. I want you to know a second then, not just God's eternal position, but God's eternal disposition. God's eternal disposition. His character. After declaring who God is in position, the text then goes on to declare who God is as person. God occupies a role king of ages. It's a position that he alone qualifies for, and he does so because of who he is. In scripture, God makes much of a person being qualified, not merely because of the skills they have, but because of the character they show. Skills can be taught. Character takes time to develop. The Lord is qualified as king of the ages because of both, because he has both the skill and the character. As creator, God only, only God, has the skills and capabilities necessary to fulfill the role of king of the ages. But it's not God's ability to do anything that is the focus of our text here. The attention is placed more on who God is rather than what God does. That's an attribute of any doxology. Any doxology that should be a praise of God Because any praise of God is founded more on who God is than what God does. As an example, certainly we should be thankful for what God does. That should cause us to praise him and adore him and and be grateful. But we should be grateful if he doesn't do anything as well. Think about this. The Lord provides shelter. But what if he had not provided shelter for one night? Is he still worthy of praise? Of course. And so any doxology praises the Lord for who he is. And Paul does so with these three attributes here, immortal, invisible, and the only God, it says. And each of these points to his worthiness as the king of the ages. He's first described here as immortal, immortal. The Greek and the Roman gods, worshipped by the pagan society at the time, were often considered to be immortal, meaning they would never die. And then they had emperor worship, who obviously the emperors would die and could not be immortal, and yet their worship of them was. But the Lord of God is superior to all because he is truly immortal. Psalm 92, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. His immortality assures his eternal rule as King of the Ages. But that word immortal actually means incorruptible. It's not just that God has lived, will always live. It means incorruptible. That's a hard concept for us to gather because in our current state as humans, because of sin, we are corruptible. We are corruptible spiritually. It's not uncommon to find us worshiping something other than God. We find ourselves anxious and depressed, all symptoms of that spiritual corruption, and then we're corrupted physically. Our bodies will break down They are subject to disease and to death. But the Lord is not subject to the effects of sin. And so, as a result, he is incorruptible. The same word is used to describe God in Romans 1.23. In fact, turn there, beginning in chapter 1 of Romans. Just make it easier as I read a longer text. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter one the words in verse twenty three, but for context, let me read the beginning in verse nineteen. And we read the following Romans one nineteen for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. In verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal or the incorruptible God For images resembling mortal man, corruptible man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. There are two contrasts here. The first is the willingness of man to adopt worship of a corruptible object created by God (coughs) rather than to worship the incorruptible God. This is evidence of the foolishness of humanity we see. I sent Bethany a picture a few weeks ago because I was studying at a library and the library is Spurgeon's original library. They brought all his books over, they're in a library, and then they have these different things there. The picture I sent, and there are things I don't like about Spurgeon. There's a lot of great things. I I enjoy his remarks on some things. I looked at him sometimes for getting examples and seeing what he says about text. But the picture I sent to Bethany was a bottle of water. The bottle of water was water that had been bottled at the lake that he had been baptized in. And I just said, not that anybody was worshipping it there, but that proves we can make an idol out of anything. That's what we see here. That's the first contrast. Worshipping the corruptible instead of the incorruptible God. But there's a second contrast, and that second contrast is that the incorruptible God... Who is contrasted to the corruptible humanity that's chosen to go its own way. Romans chapter 1 is talking about how people left to their own devices go their own way and they reject God. But the Lord the Lord is immortal. The Lord is incorruptible. He's not subject to that corruption and that decay and that death that overtakes humanity. Everything else in this world breaks down cars, appliances, buildings, roads, but God does not. They will perish, the psalmist writes, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You, God, will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. This makes God reliable His character, who he is, is incorruptible. That means we never have to worry that God will slip or that God will ever act in a way that is contrary to his holiness. He is incorruptible. He is immortal. And so he is reliable. He is also called invisible here. We learn in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This makes Jesus' coming into the earth that much more important. As John writes of it, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If nobody has seen God except Christ, It is only to Christ, then, that we can look in order to know who God is. If God is invisible, God can only be known by his own self-revelation. And he chose to reveal himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so through Christ, the invisible God is now made visible. And through Christ's teaching at the Sermon on the Mount, there's a tremendous promise given. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who are the pure in heart? Those who have obtained the righteousness through Christ's work. See, unable to make ourselves pure, every person must rely instead on the pure nature of Christ. And then look what happens. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God. The invisible God, who is unseen, becomes seen. And because he is seen, he is now knowable. In light of his incorruptible disposition, this point about his invisibility becoming visible becomes very important. Because we just talked about how this world and the ways of this world, and even ourselves, are all subject to corruption and decay and death. That's depressing. But God is incorruptible. He bypasses all of that. Our hope of overcoming a corruptible world is an incorruptible God. But then we learn that God is invisible. So what do we do? That's why we long to see God. Because he is the hope of avoiding all this corruptibility. Look at Job's experience. He knows firsthand the corruption of the world. He has lost everything. His family, his flocks, his own friends turn against him. Even his wife opposes his faithfulness. We read of that this morning in Job chapter 19. And he's in despair But even after everything he's been through, Job proclaims and exclaims a hope in verses 25 through 27. Think about what he says. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. In light of this corruptible age, our hope is to see the incorruptible king of ages. If I'm to be truthful with you guys, I, I have to confess I'm weary. I'm weary subject to that same decay and that destruction we just talked about spiritually i'm weary but this doxology it gives me hope and i hope it gives others hope as i think about those who are dealing with problems specifically children and grandchildren right now this gives us hope because one day we will see the invisible god that should give any believer hope the more we see this corruptible, visible world, the more we should desire to see the incorruptible, invisible God. That's our hope. But that hope can't be just in any God. It must be in the only God. In fact, that's the last attribute listed here. He is the only God The Greco-Roman world of Paul's day was polytheistic, meaning they worshipped many supposed gods. But there was always only one God. There was only one king of the ages. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 5, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, but there is only one God. That reality has been consistent through all the ages and all the eras. Again, people have a tendency to make an idol out of anything. In fact, though I would disagree with the theology of G.K. Chesterton, he's got some good points sometimes. And he says something that I think is very true. When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. And for this reason, worship of God then becomes critical because if we aren't actively placing the Lord before our hearts and before our minds on an ongoing, regular basis, we will fall into the worship of anything but God. That's why you see the first commandment of Exodus 23 and why it's so critical. You shall have no other gods before me. If we get this wrong, and it's easy to get it wrong, if we get this command wrong, we get the Christian life wrong. This is the eternal disposition of God, that he is the immortal, invisible, only God. And that leads us to the next point. And so I want you to know, finally, the eternal adoration of God. God's eternal adoration. 1 Timothy 1.17 ascribes To God, all honor and all glory. Though some may give, or at least attempt to give honor and glory elsewhere, only God is deserving of it all. This is the result of who God is. The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. All of that results in eternal praise for God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. At Ephesus, Paul finds himself having to confront worship of something other than that one true, immortal, invisible God. Because worship of anything else is incompatible with the worship of God. And so at Ephesus, not, not just in our text in 1 Timothy, but going all the way back to Acts 19, Paul's having to confront false teaching and confront worship of something other. In Acts chapter 19, Paul's confronting the worship of Artemis at the temple of Artemis. And hearing the teaching of Paul, there are some in Ephesus who are so devoted to Artemis and recognizing the incompatibility to worship Artemis or worship God, they begin to oppose Paul's teaching. And so Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 24 For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul And crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. First off, what are they worshipping? Or who are they worshipping? It's not Artemis, at least not fully. Their primary concern here is money. So it appears they're worshipping money, but it's not even that. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt and, and say that they are genuinely concerned about their livelihood. Maybe they have families at home. Maybe they have debts to be paid. And if they lose their job, as any of us would worry, that's a legitimate concern. How do I care for my family? But who are they trusting in to provide for their family, if that's truly the case? Like, Again, yeah, just giving the benefit of the doubt. They're trusting in themselves. Either way, whether they're trusting in the money or they're trusting in themselves, neither one is worship of God. It appears then that Artemis is a a weak god, unable to provide for them. So they're really just trusting in their own self-sufficiency. This is what they're worshiping. That self-sufficiency prevents them from adequately worshiping any god, but especially adequately worshiping the true god. It prevents them from adequately ascribing to God honor, And glory that is due him. In contrast to their self-sufficiency, Paul has just shared a testimony in 1 Timothy. And it's a testimony that is the exact opposite of self-sufficiency. Paul deems himself both unworthy and unable. And the result is that he has nothing but high praise for God. Those words here capture the position of people. In fact, I would say that verse 17, by proclaiming the position of God, proclaims the position of man. What I mean by that is we look here and see God's position, exalted king, worthy of glory. By that then, that means we are the ones who ascribe to him the glory. God in his position exists as king of the ages. And because of that, every other person is in position, or or should be in position, to orient themselves towards God in adoration, proclaiming honor and glory, as Paul does here. God the Father ascribes glory and honor to the Son, according to Peter. Peter says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Believers are to live a life that is doxological. That is that they are to live a life that is oriented towards the glory of God. The glory of God is magnificent. And what a glorious thing it would be to see his glory filled the entire earth. The believer's life manifests that glory, testifying to it and showing the greatness of God. Ephesians tells us that that's a fruit of salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. Salvation from God results in adoration of God. The result is not merely that God is glorified here and now. But that one day he will be honored and glorified eternally by all the saints in heaven. Proclaiming with the psalmist, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the eternal adoration of God. If we can't enjoy and exalt God now, how could we ever enjoy and exalt God eternally in heaven? Jonathan Edwards credits this verse for his salvation, wrestling with who God was, laboring through the supremacy of god he came upon first timothy 1 17, and he read these words now to the king of the ages immortal invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever amen after reading this verse edwards paused to reflect and wrote in his own journal as i read these words there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being a new sense, quite different than from anything I have ever experienced before. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven. By this verse in First Timothy, the Lord has been set before our eyes, just as he was set before the eyes of Jonathan Edwards. This verse shows God's eternal position, King of the Ages, Sovereign Lord over all things in all eras. From his throne he reigns, ruling over humanity, whether they accept his kingship or not. The Lord is still the King of the Ages. It also shows God's eternal disposition. He is the immortal, invisible, only God. The Lord holds his only, his eternal position, because of his eternal disposition. He is incorruptible, never subject to death and decay that any mortal person would experience. He is invisible, unable to be seen, and yet the Christian's hope is that one day they will see him. And finally, it shows his eternal adoration. Because of his eternal position and because of his eternal disposition, the Lord is deserving of all honor and glory. What we think about God determines the person we are before God. The Lord God has been elevated to his rightful position. And seeing God as he is, just like Edward saw, continually changes and transforms our lives. This verse sets the Lord before us. It calls upon us to see who God is, that we may see who we are causing us to look upon his majesty and see his all-sufficient grace that we may deny our own self-sufficiency. If this is who God is, then it is in him that we must find not just our source of life, but we must find our motivation for life. We must find our joy in life. We must find our purpose in life. The first question of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And then it answers, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him fully forever. Walter Liefeld writes of this verse, it is not trite to remind ourselves that our lives should be one continuous doxology, a life lived in praise of God. What we think about God determines how we live for God. It will determine our relationships with others and their relationship with us. What we think about God will determine how we work and how we play. And what we think about God will determine both how we live and how we die. Let's pray. Our Father God, the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, Indeed, Lord, you are the only one deserving of all honor and all glory, Lord. Father, may we ascribe to you the honor and glory that is due. May we see you as king of all things, king of the ages. May we see you as king over our lives, Lord. May we join with Paul, may we join with Jonathan Edwards, proclaiming who you are, living out who you are, and finding all our enjoyment and all our trust, in you. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.